I think many of you know, but in case you don't, I'm Christopher Mack, one of the pastors here on staff. And one of the things that I get to help uh, work with is our teaching, which sometimes means that I am the person who's here, in fact, teaching. And many other times it means I get to coordinate with our wonderful preaching team uh, and Sometimes you know some of the regulars like Wei and Jenna, um, but we also have others within our community um, who are gifted and who offer unique perspective. And we don't want any of us to inherit the blind spots of one or two or three people. So we believe the more people we have doing the work of the people, including proclaiming from scripture, uh, the better that is for us as a community to be able to hear God's word proclaimed through different voices and perspectives and life experiences. And so uh, we have someone who is going to be having their first time to share with us uh, at Vox, at least in the homily. They're an incredibly gifted speaker. Uh, I first got to know Amy Wolfgang uh, when they were on the search committee that ultimately called uh, me to be here. And there was a incredibly tender moment for me. I was not yet out of the closet and was trying to navigate when I would share that with the search committee and ended up doing that um, on a Zoom interview that Amy was on. And Amy kind of had us pause the interview and ask all the search committee members to take off their search committee hats and to put on their pride celebration hats. And uh, honored that for me at the time, uh, this Vox pastor search interview, it was June uh, two years ago, um, was one of the few spaces that I was able to come out and say my truth that I was a gay man and wanted to affirm and celebrate that with me. And so there was clapping and celebration, and then we still had some interviewing to go. So they took the celebration party hats off, put the interviewer hats back on, and uh, proceeded. But Ever since then, that's just so deeply touched my heart. I probably came out to a dozen or more people in the rest of Pride, which for me was a lot more than I had previously come out to, um, just out of the excitement of that. So Amy has been a huge gift to our community, uh, has been uh, instrumental in our journey with LGBTQ affirmation, has served on the board of the Human Empathy Project, which is also working in conversations with LGBTQ inclusion and affirmation, particularly in religious spaces, has taught. I was at QCF, which is a queer Christian fellowship, uh, and Amy was a presenter uh, there. They're just incredibly gifted, and I'm so excited uh, for us to get a chance to hear from them. Will you please give an incredibly warm and raucous and celebratory welcome to Amy Wolfgang. Let me get my accessories set up. Thank you for cramming your tall body in this little space that I made. Okay. Can you see my face? No, she says no. Okay. Now we're ready. Good morning, Vox. And a very blessed last Sunday of Pride Month. Um, when I saw the actual text for today on the lectionary, um, it was not the most uplifting set of readings. 
and I reconsidered my choice of date. Uh, so included in the readings in the lectionary, which is how we sort of frame our year uh, in this community, we have psalms of lament from a community in the midst of peril, the fracturing of family and household relationships. And if I'm being really honest, a few verses that I know have been taken as a mandate to harm the most vulnerable people in this world. And on the other hand, I hold a special place for this Sunday because it is the last Sunday of Pride Month. And in the sweltering heat across our state, LGBTQ plus people, families, allies, even a few pets have been celebrating. Last week was Juneteenth. And so some of those festivities combined in really beautiful ways for the black queer people of our state. And for me, reading the Bible, finding meaning there, and then taking that out into the world to apply it is often an exercise in this tension that I just talked about. I hold pain and lament, confusion, joy, beauty, and pleasure all in my arms together. And so it's not really a one or the other. It's, a, it's like a whole, whole arm thing. Um, is anyone a one-trip grocery bringer-inner? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it feels sometimes a little bit like I've got all my bags, and they're like those plastic flimsy ones, right? And I've made it up the first set of stairs to my apartment, and the eggs are slipping. <laughs> and sometimes it feels like somebody's kicking my eggs out of my hand. In the last six months in particular, I know I've stood in that dynamic, and I know the queer community has, and our trans siblings have. While the rhetoric of the last year and the, our legislative session in Texas in particular raged on, I looked around at my life and I saw this vibrance that I hadn't had before. Those emotions juxtaposed sharply with the rhetoric where trans, non-binary, gender diverse, and queer people as a whole, and drag performers, let's not forget, uh, were characterized as dangerous, and in particular as dangerous to children. And I'm going to say some of those words today. It might be shocking to hear those words on a Sunday morning in a church. But we can often dismiss the words that we hear coming at us. And I want to acknowledge the reality of what some of our lives have been like. So if you need to care for yourself, please do what you need to do. You can step out. You can play a little classical music. <laughs> that might actually be really regulating. Um, so I'm going to use some of those words, and it, it may be upsetting. And it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Some of the words that have been spoken over queer people in the last year in particular Groomer, pervert, aberration. 
And at the same time that those words were being used in the Texas state capitol, on the other hand, a group of clergy and religious leaders from around the state gathered in the Texas state capitol, and they called us holy, loved, divine. So I hope that y'all can trust me today that I will let, not let you leave this place on a hard note. Both because if you keep reading the Bible in this particular passage, uh, the author begins to talk about the benefits and the joys. I don't get that luxury in my text, but... <laughs> but also because I cannot release you from this space and I cannot let you leave on YouTube uh, without a pivot to joy that I know and have experienced is a hallmark of pride. So let's look at our text. Verse 26, the author writes, So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. So, the writer here is not making a, a prediction necessarily. They're speaking to a specific community that's already in the midst of really big change. The segment of a population has decided to follow the teachings of Jesus. And the result of that is that they find themselves experiencing not peace or the, a lack of conflict, but immense change and tension in some of the most important lives important relationships in their lives. They also find themselves in a larger context in conflict with empire. So the very real empire of yore, but also the power structures that are in place. And we experience that today. So the author is saying these wrongs and the harm that you're experiencing, they will come out. Everybody's got to answer for their choices in good and bad ways. It's not a threat, it's an eventuality. When we speak what is said in the dark out into the light, we create conditions for change. And that change is sometimes precipitated by conflict, by that rub. And this community is perhaps stretched to the very ends of their stress tolerance. So my birthday is December 1st, Sagittarius. Uh, some of you might know what that means more than I do, but uh, because I'm queer, I have to know that. Um, <laughs> our whole society is, is structured around that. <laughs> um, and I was born in the 80s. And so when I was two years old, December 1st was made World AIDS Day. And before I even really knew what a lesbian was, and before I had ever heard the word queer, I knew about AIDS. And looking back, it's not surprising to me that I developed a deep care and empathy for people living with HIV and AIDS. There was some holy rainbow thread that connected me to these people that I experienced primarily through MTV and the real world, if you remember Pedro, 
Uh, and also the nightly news. Um, my parents had a great practice of, we all sat down to watch the news at night. And the news was really different in the 90s. Um, it was in this kind of context that after seeing one of the first lesbian couples to get married, doing an interview on the news with their mullets flowing in the wind, I turned to my mom and I asked if I could marry my best friend, who was also named Amy at the time. My memory tells me that from behind me, in a kind of uncharacteristic response for my mom, and sort of unprepared, a response tumbled out of her mouth that was, mm, no. So I asked why, of course. And then, deeply uncomfortable, I heard her say, because it's against the church. And I said, well, that's dumb. And I turned back to 60 Minutes, whatever we were watching. <laughs> because I also was lucky enough, even though I grew up in a household of faith, that uh, I was able to get out a little unscathed. We all have injuries that happen, but... So I grew up Catholic in a very small town in the coal region. And our whole town was organized around various ethnic pockets uh, attached to each Catholic church. I personally still call myself culturally Catholic. I have a deep connection to the imagery, the structure, and somehow the institution of the Catholic church. But I have clear eyes around the harm that has been caused by this institution. You don't have to look far to find it. So in a moment, we're gonna see a uh, film clip that was made in 1989, the Stop the Church protest organized by the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, or ACT UP, as they're known. This group came together in the 1980s as a way to galvanize support and resources for people living and dying with HIV and AIDS. The government was pretty much silent. Uh, it wouldn't be until the 90s that a US president would say the word AIDS on television. And at this same time, the Catholic Church was pressuring public schools uh, to not inform students about condom use and HIV prevention. Sound familiar? Um, and so this clip takes place in St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is an architectural monument in New York City, and also a place of worship for very powerful Catholics in the city, like Ed Koch, who we're going to see in profile, uh, who was the mayor of New York City at the time. Members of ACT UP had entered the cathedral before services started and were prepared to stage what would become known as a die-in, D-I-E. Um, again, this is a clip that's going to involve some shouting, uh, screaming, perhaps, for their lives. And so if you're not ready to experience that, please feel free to step out. If you're on YouTube, feel free to, to mute and then come back and join us when the clip is over. So let's take a look at this protest. Jesus Christ, I 
in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral on Sunday. We're here reporting on a major AIDS activist and abortion rights activist demonstration, which will be taking place here all morning. Inside, Cardinal O'Connor is busy spreading his lies and rumors about the position of lesbians and gays. We're here to say, we want to go to heaven too. JC here with the Fire and Brimstone Network, and we'd like to ask you a little bit about this large vision that you visited upon us. Well, we decided to rename the Cardinal. He's now Cardinal of Condoms. This is our message to him. The condoms are safe. It's no sin. killing us. So the person at the beginning of the clip uh, playing Jesus is an artist and Chicano activist named Ray Navarro, uh, himself a person with AIDS who frequently reported from the scene of these protests as Jesus Christ. And it struck me the last line uh, that he says in the beginning, we want to go to heaven too. And I know that for a lot of those people, heaven was not the heaven constructed by the Catholic Church, probably. Um, Ray passed away about a year after this protest from complications related to AIDS. I think this clip really illustrates the world of the global church that we find ourselves in. It's likely, uh, so there were thousands of people outside the church protesting, so it's likely that a significant portion of those people considered themselves part of the Christian faith. And they found themselves, because they were standing up for the marginalized, for their loved ones and family, outside of that power dynamic, possibly for the first time in their life. They were confronting their own mortality and the indifference of Christian power structures. But they began not to whisper what is true but to scream it out amongst the parishioners of St. Patrick's, outside the FDA, and outside the homes and gathering places of the political elite. There's a sign in the crowd that says, church is what kind of love? And I think about that a lot because as people called primarily to love, I, it's a question that we need to keep on our minds. Church is what kind of love? 2019 marked 50 years since the Stonewall riots, where trans women of color, sex workers, 
and queer people fought back against the brutal policing of their community. All around New York City, people were gathering from around the world. They were pouring in to celebrate this milestone. And a not insignificant group of people were raising their voices in their hands and saying, we've still got some work to do. We've got work to do inside our community and outside our community. So in the middle of this, Father James Martin, who I know there are many fangirlies of in this community, uh, a Jesuit priest, gave the homily at the Church of St. Francis of Assisi. And he has a few points for LGBTQ Catholics, um, but I picked just one. So let's listen to that. All the more reason, my brothers and sisters and siblings, to be like Jesus, that is tough. So first of all, claim your rightful place in your church. Look, if you are baptized and you're LGBTQ or an LGBTQ parent or family member, you are as much a part of this church as Pope Francis, your local bishop, your pastor, or me. Root yourself in your baptism and claim your place in your church. I love him so much. Be tough. Claim your rightful place. And I'm expanding this to the entirety of Christianity. Hearing these words from a member of the clergy in a Catholic church changed my life. I had personally been struggling with the title of Christian. I was ashamed to use that for myself. I was ashamed to introduce myself in that way, even though it was a massive part of my life, and it is. I looked around me, and I didn't see behavior that I could reconcile with my morals or what I saw that so captivated me about Jesus. Church is what kind of love? Vox had just come to the point of coming out as affirming after many harrowing years of discussion and pondering and skill building. And while we did very important work during those years, which was about seven, we also got stuck in a place of thinking that somehow we could avoid this rub, that somehow that we could avoid a necessary division that happens when you stand up for the marginalized. We were not fully committed yet to severing ties with the empire of church. And the result of that middle place was that Vox was not serving or caring for the most vulnerable in that affirmation journey. So I hold in my arms the milestones of our affirmation journey, and I mourn the times when we whispered what could have been shouted and we kept dim what could have been in the light. Our text goes on in verse 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Okay. Wow. Nick was right. Um, <laughs> I wanted to avoid this passage, and I'm very good at 
avoidance. It's kind of a gift. <laughs> and I really, I read it and I read it and I read it. And my first reaction um, was interesting because I knew that this part of the passage was used to justify Christian action in the world that amounts to violence and sometimes is actual violence. Some of you in here today may have felt the pain of separation from a Christian family who holds a violent God above the tender heart of a queer person or a single mom or a human struggling in the midst of substance misuse. Perhaps you were on the other side and in taking this advice through that interpretation of scripture, you put distance between yourself and a loved one that you had to reckon with later on. Perhaps you haven't reckoned with it yet. And here's where I get really curious. Why, when I read this passage, do I imagine the hilt of a sword in my hand? Why does some tradition teach us that that sword in my hand is God's sword? Life committed to not to a nonviolent God would not place a sword in our hands, but it would see us staring at the tip of one. What does it say that many of us have learned faithfulness means that we carry a sword to cut out? For the people who are not queer in this space today, I challenge you to encounter the tip of a sword for queer people. Kevin Miguel Garcia has a way of framing this and they call it those that go first. When queer people don't have it in us to fight more, allies and accomplices will actively enter a space in order to prepare a safer way for us. And we don't have to go first. And I wanna highlight that Two of the author's three examples here of relationships refer to women and relationships specific to women. And in a, society, in a society where men and women lived a lot of their lives in these sort of socially separated spaces, right? You would get married and you would probably move into your mother-in-law's household. And before that, you would remain in your mother's household. And in those relationships, you would carry out all of the work of life maintaining the household livestock, raising children, making clothing, conflict resolution. <laughs> so these were relationships that held up the fabric of society. And so it's, it's not um, surprising that the author is highlighting these. The prying apart of these relationships must have been deeply painful for the women that this author is writing to. Modern research has shown us that a person's brain experiencing emotional pain or um, social disconnection experiences that in the same way as physical pain. It registers in the same way. So our text reminds us that a choice to follow a nonviolent God does not always generate peace, but often puts us at the, at the point of conflict, at the point of capitalism at the point of transphobia, at the point of political systems made for the benefit of the few and not most people. So verse 37 says, anyone who loves their father 
or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So these last three verses are really driving home. When you make this choice to pursue your belief and you find yourself at the tip, you have a choice to make. The author is again highlighting some of these really important relationships that are lovely and beautiful to us now, but really kept society functioning at that time. It's truly not a command to eschew meaningful labels like daughter and son and mother and father. Not to eschew those for an identity in God, which many queer people have been told, well, your identity should be in God, not as a lesbian or a gay person. But it's an acknowledgement to a group of people for what they're, the cost they are paying in real time. They are losing the meaning, the meaning of those relationships. And the last half of the last verse gives us a cool slip of air on our skin. We receive the vision of new life built out of this hardship. And now we're going to pivot. The exercise I'm about to lead us in is inspired by the people who are out in the world doing the work and the ancestors that have done it before us. They work in organizing and change and challenge spaces. They are radicals who feel the very point of society's spheres on a regular basis, and they still choose vision. I received this practice from Adrienne Marie Brown, who I highly recommend checking out. Uh, who is a fiction writer, an organizer, a facilitator. Um, and she writes, I have come to believe that facts, guilt, and shame are limited motivations for creating change. Even, those, even, those are the, even though those are the primary forces we use in our organizing work, I suspect that to really transform our society, we will need to make justice one of the most pleasurable experiences we can have. So some of you might be familiar with a prayer of examine, which is an Ignatian um, practice. So we're just getting deep into Ignatians today. Um, and that's a way of looking back over your day and asking God to show you the places where they have been. Um, there is a special pride examine available that um, I'm going to make available through the QR code uh, that's going to be behind me. Um, so you'll get the link to the pride examine, which is for everyone. It is for queer people. It is for allies. It is for people who don't think you have queer people in your life. Um, and also the text of what I'm going to walk us through will be in that doc with the QR code. Um, if the phone is not your thing, um, I have two lovely assistants, Kimberly and Jack, and we have a limited number of printouts. So if you'd like to take a printout home with you, just give a little wave and make some intense eye contact with them. Um, but I will verbally walk us through. So 
I am proposing today a prayer of radical imagination, where we spend time imagining and experiencing the world we are working towards. At this point, I encourage you to let go of trying to intellectualize anything and thinking, well, what's the political system in this imagination of mine? And how will we get food? Put it down. Um, I like to imagine having a basket where I kind of just place those things and I can go back to later. Uh, but if you want to jot something down, go ahead and do it and be gentle with yourself. Um, one of the best lessons I've ever learned from an Indigenous restorative justice practitioner is to let the experience be the experience. Don't jump to meaning making without letting yourself just exist in a space. So to get ourselves ready, take or leave whatever of this prep that you would like. You can shake yourself out, wiggle a little bit, move from standing to sitting or vice versa. We're gonna engage in a practice from Resma Menachem that's included in my grandmother's hands. So we're gonna look directionally. We're gonna look forward to your left, to your right, look up, not into the lights, look down. And finally, we're gonna look behind us and we're really looking, this is not a stretch, we look behind us for threats, for the past, for our ancestors. And you can turn your whole body or you can look over your shoulder. <laughs> so if it helps you to engage your senses more, you can close your eyes during this practice. And some uh, other options. So if spending time with yourself in this kind of way with your eyes closed is deeply uncomfortable or activates some of your trauma or harm, uh, in a way that you're not really prepared for, that's okay. You can keep your eyes open as an option. We have beautiful art around the space and a very neutral floor <laughs> that you can rest your eyes on. Uh, or maybe you have an object with you that helps you calm yourself. Uh, you can also engage with this activity when you're in a better physical environment that you trust. Um, in fact, I encourage you all to engage in this activity on a regular basis as a way to nurture yourself for the work. If you have a therapist or a care person or a trusted comrade uh, that has the capacity to kind of explore with you, uh, maybe you can talk with them through the challenges that you've had in engaging with this. And of course, journaling, always available. So get yourself settled and we're gonna walk through the practice. Using your radical imagination, experience the world you are creating. What does it smell like? What are the sounds around you? What does it taste like? What are the sensations on your skin? Not only of reaching out to touch, but of letting the world engage with you.
And finally, what does the world look like? Okay. Gently come back from your beautiful world. Thank you for participating in that. And thank you for taking care of yourself if you weren't able to. So my Vox community, my beloved people, I am gathering you in both of my arms and I am closing our time with this. What is the life that you are risking it all for? What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? What are the textures and the physical feelings? Who is there? Are you there? Am I there? I hope we are. Thank you.